Welcome to the Thrive Student Ministry Podcast. Thrive is an MBSF college ministry on the campus of the University of Arkansas at Fayetteville. At Thrive, we empower students to engage in their relationship with God through mentorship, friendship, and the discovery of their purpose. For more information on our gathering times, including our events, small groups, and weekly worship, visit us at thriveuark.com or follow us on our social medias at thriveuark. This week, we're excited to continue our series on faith and vision as our director, Jack Cross, speaks on the context of what Peter's faith looked like when he stepped out of the boat to walk on water. We hope you enjoy the message. Anyway, we got a very interesting story, a very uh, intriguing, deep piece that we're going to look at here in just a minute. If you want to, uh, if you got your scripture or whatever, if you got your phone, you can go ahead and make your way toward Matthew 14. But before we get there, uh, I came across this story that um, over the last couple of weeks that is it pours right into this idea that we're go- or a direction that we're going tonight. But there's this, there's a. Um, He's now a captain. He ended up getting a Medal of Honor. Um, but Sergeant, at the time, he was Sergeant um, Mike, or they call it, his ne- first name actually is Gary, uh, Gary Michael Rose, but they, let, they called him Mike. And so, anyway, this is him. And, and what he got his medal for was he was in Special Forces. Uh, and then he was part of Vietnam, got a chance there to... Uh, he just had all kinds of different kinds of training, trying to figure out how he could serve his country. Uh, decided medic was the way to do it. Did, ended up going special forces and got teamed up with a particular special forces unit that was uh, United States troops, but then also some some local indigenous uh, Vietnamese people and then uh, another group. <laughs> and they were in Laos. So, I mean, that, I got the story going on. Um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Abby's people from Laos. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that's, that's kind of the, that's where they were going into um, in order to kind of go behind enemy lines. And what he said in an interview was that when he kind of got on the plane, he, he, he knew just enough to know what he needed to do. And, and, but he knew from the debriefing and some, you know, as he saw his guys kind of load up, they were carrying way more ammunition than they normally do. Uh, and so he knew that this was something, and then he was told to kind of pack extra supplies as well. So he, he didn't know where he was going, but he knew that the border uh, where they were flying into, I think you got a map there, but the border where they were flying into, um, it was about five minutes away and they were a good solid 45 minute uh, helicopter ride. So he knew we're, we're definitely dropping in deep. And, and in fact they did. And so they drop in. And in the first day, it, I mean, as soon as they start, it, he said, as soon as they passed the border, they started being shot at uh, in the helicopter. And then they, of course, rode for 45 minutes. I can't imagine that just in, <laughs> in my own self, just what that would be like. Um, but then as they get dropped in, they spend the first day and there's all kinds of different things that are, that are starting to take place and happen. Uh, he takes a bullet in the arm um, pretty much uh, within the first couple of hours that shatters, uh, shatters the bone. And the rest of the time, he spent he spends his time trying to travel around, trying to pull people out. Within the within the first day, they had two of the Americans and then two of the um, the indigenous group that was with them, um, that was fighting with them in special forces. They got they got hit, and one of the guys was outside of the the perimeter, and so 
you know, buddies and stuff, they, they documented this and said that he actually ended up having to crawl out, go get him, uh, bandaged him up the way that he needed to be bandaged, and then drug him back into the perimeter uh, of them. And so just over the next three and four days, that's exactly what it was. And so he's credited with, and I mean, there's a, it, it, go look up his story sometime. It's, it's, very, uh, it's a very, very good read. And just, uh, anyway, I, I haven't found a particular book that tells his story, but uh, if there's not some... There you go. There's an idea. You can write that one. Uh, so uh, he uh, he's credited with about 60 to 70 different people that he bandaged up and, and got through there. I think that every United States soldier that went on that mission was injured. But only one person died. Everybody got back. Um, and I don't even think that it was an American that died. I think it was um, somebody else that, that passed while they were there. And this whole time, and, and matter of fact, I think it was day two or day three, a grenade was thrown close to him, and he said that a piece of shrapnel went through his foot that it was big enough he could put his thumb through the hole. Uh, so, like, that's the kind of stuff he, he dealt with. And in the, even in the midst of that, um, as it came, became time to medevac out, day four, um, he, he was about to get on the helicopter that was taking fire, and the guys took off a little bit early and because they were just under, under too much fire. And, and actually, that helicopter went down a few miles uh, from them. The, the, he gets the, on the fourth, I think, third or fourth plane that, or uh, helicopter that comes through. He gets on it and with his buddy, and they're trying to talk back and forth and just the sense of kind of relief, but then also, you know, still very much... Um, understanding that they're still in the battle, even though they're, they're, they're on the helicopter getting ready to fly out. Um, and they're trying to chat back and forth a little bit. And then as they get about 4,500 feet above the ground, the plane goes quiet, which meant that the motors quit working. They'd been shot out. And it, the irony of the situation is that, that he, he doesn't remember a lot of what happens on that day but the thing that he remembered was that he turned to his buddy and said, and they were kind of locked arms and holding on because they were sitting right there at the tailgate. And he, he remembers turning to his buddy and saying, we're going to crash. And his buddy just, you know, very little excitement. Matter of fact, turned to him and said, yep, we're going down. And they, the pilot did a phenomenal job of trying to figure out how to land that thing. Uh, but he actually doesn't remember how he got to the ground. Uh, but what he does remember is being on the ground and dazed. Uh, somehow he had been thrown from the helicopter, uh, but then in kind of a sense of daze and everything and saw his buddies um, as the helicopter was on fire, was able to kind of come back in, uh, start grabbing and pulling them out, throwing gear out uh, and trying to get them. And so, in fact, saved every single one of them uh, and then was able to uh, be um, airlifted out uh, in but a matter of a couple of hours. The story, you know, like you said, he, he looks back at it and says, uh, he's a man of faith, and he says, There's, I have no clue how in the world the helicopter went down. I have no clue how I got out of it, um, other than just that God had to have intervened on that day. Quite a miraculous type moment in the midst of going down. And one of the things about Mike is that, that he said through the whole incident and, and, you know, several of the guys looking back on it were saying, you know, like there was he was shot on day one and he constantly was bandaging up and taking care of people. And of course, he said, you know, as a medic, he, he was doing his job. He's doing what he needed to be doing and that, that his job was to look people in the face, keep them from shock and let them know that you're not alone 
you're going to be okay. And then bandage them up the best possible and keep moving. Uh, drag them to safety where they need to be safe and keep going. And so just quite a remarkable story to begin to think about that, that Mike Rose and those guys had a very legitimate enemy and absolutely in the midst of chaos, trying to figure out how to stay calm, how to stay peaceful, how to, how to stay focused. And really, as we go into where we're at with Peter's story, that's kind of where we're going to get to. And so in Matthew 14, there's a lot that goes on there. And, and, and I want you to turn there. I want you to look there. I, there is so much here that I'm going to blow through it quickly. But I, I've taught on this a, a couple times on the church setting and pathway. Um, but, but the idea of meditating... If, you, if you've never had a practice of like meditating on the scripture, okay, uh, one of the things between Eastern and Eastern meditation and then like our like meditation, like within a Christian standpoint, would be Eastern meditation is like trying to empty your mind and not think of anything. Um, Christianity meditation would be like to fill your mind with the scripture. So that's kind of the easy thing there. But what I mean by that is get your piece of paper out, write a scripture, or in this case, maybe write, you know, a passage or whatever down, and then... Don't do anything else. Matter of fact, you can even get you a side piece of paper, and I can tell you a different way to do that. But, but, but if anything else comes to your mind about schoolwork, about whatever, jot that down so that you can make sure, because I'm sure whatever it is, it's important, right? Um, <laughs> so go ahead, write that down so you can know, hey, it's there, I, but I'm not going to spend time thinking about it. I'm going to stay focused on this. Because there is so much in Matthew 14. And one of the things about me is, for those of you who are freshmen, I know there's a lot of you in here that you're, not, you're familiar with the Scripture. Some of you, you know, this, is, this might be the first time you've ever heard this story, but, but you're kind of, several of you, you're familiar. And one of the things I would tell you specifically is those of you who are familiar with the text, especially where we're going tonight, because those of you who've been growing up in church, you've heard the story. The temptation is, because I've been there as well, is as we begin to read this, you think, I got it. I know it. I understand it. And the truth of the matter is, it's deep. It's super deep. There's a lot going on here. And so I'd encourage you to try to look at it as best you can with fresh eyes. And to think, okay, let me pull out, let me act like I don't understand this story. And just see if there's anything new that we can find out. Because the Word is alive and it's true and it's good. And it's profitable for you and me and, and how we live our lives. And so in Matthew 14, there's all kinds of, like I said, all kinds of different things going on. And one of the things that it starts with is what? Somebody, just so you can get a little bit of feedback. Make sure you're not asleep yet, Allison. <laughs> no, I know you're not. But no, so what happens at the beginning of Matthew 14? What's it say on probably the headline or title in somebody's Bible? The death, death of John the Baptist. There you go. The death of John the Baptist, right? It says John the Baptist beheaded. There you go. So, they, but, but that's, the, that's the essence, right? John the Baptist, the message of John the Baptist is being killed. I don't know that I've ever really paid attention to the way that this flows. Because Dom, I think, alluded to the fact 
about like what happens during the gospel and like what, what, where Peter's story was laying out and all that kind of stuff. And, and, and like we know that the story of Peter and Jesus and the other disciples, like it took some time, right? And so it's three years worth. And so sometimes there's gaps and we miss that within the scripture sometimes where it's like something happened and then maybe it was a little while at least before the next thing happened. That's not the case here. These things happen back to back to back. That's kind of important, especially if you start thinking about what, like, mentally, if you were there, what you'd be going through. John the Baptist dies. Now, who's John the Baptist? John the Baptist is the guy who's proclaiming that Jesus is the Savior. He is the Messiah. He's his cousin, right? These guys are close. John is not, by, by some of his, his questioning, John's not 100% sure if Jesus is the guy. John really just knows that God has commissioned him and God has, has given him the word, right? That, that he needs to preach this and talk about this and all this kind of stuff. John also is like the way that he dies. The way that John dies is, is crappy. It just is. Like I, I mean, if you just think about it. Like he, he dies because he gets thrown in jail He's calling out somebody that's high up in government. And he's saying, hey, look, you shouldn't be having sex with her. Not a wise move for somebody who's, you know, very powerful. But it's the truth. And that's what John was about. And then they have a party to which the guy does not really want to kill John. But he has a party and he gets drunk and he does something stupid and says to this woman, hey, Whatever you want, I'll do it. Because stupid things happen when people get drunk and do crazy things. And he doesn't think about the ramifications of those words. And then he's a punk because he doesn't really want to kill this guy, but she asked for John the Baptist's head on a platter. He's like, oh, dang, shouldn't have said that. But rather than say, hey, <laughs> come on, that's a little, that's a little much. He's, rather, he's, he's afraid of being embarrassed. Go back and read it. That's what it says. <laughs> he's, afraid, he's afraid of being embarrassed in front of his people. And so he's like, yeah, okay, yeah, I can do that. And that's John. So think about it from Jesus' standpoint. <sighs> also, the reality, the reality of the realness of what's about to go down. Like the whole Jesus headed to the cross thing. I believe Jesus was both God and man. And that's weird, and I don't fully can't comprehend that because I'm not God and man. And you aren't either. And so that's very difficult to, to really wrap our minds around. But somehow Jesus knew where he was headed. And he knew that what he was preaching and teaching and talking about was going to land him where he's headed. And for John to die... It's probably a real stamp of like, good grief, this is where we're going. But then right after that, he's got to get up and speak and talk to a bunch of people because they've invited a bunch of people to a hillside where, and this is going to happen. And so he's teaching and talking. And, he, and then what happens? It's time to eat. And people are like, hey, look, his, his disciples are saying, hey, why don't you, you probably ought to send them home so they can start getting some food. And Jesus turns to him with an impossible question, right? And what's the impossible question or the impossible statement? Command. The impossible statement is, 
Feed them. <laughs> you don't understand. We don't have anything. We can't feed them. And it is impossible. They could not. They did not have the resources to go feed all these people. 5,000 men might have been as many as 15,000 people, right? Maybe even more. So that's a lot of folks. And, and there is kind of just a laugh, I would imagine, from the disciples. I, I don't know. That's the way I see it. It's like, <laughs> we ain't got nothing. And then they, they find this boy, right? Loaves and fishes. And it's like, here, like, I can't, just think about that for a second. Think about the absurdity of it. It's like, everybody knows, like, it doesn't matter how many times, I mean, some of you grew up in small towns. I grew up in a small town, uh, 15,000 people, 5,000 people is really more than what I grew up in, in the town that I grew up in. So a lot of folks. And they show up to Jesus and be like, hit my loaves and fishes. That's all we got. Like, that's got to have been a joke, right? Of like, I don't, I don't know what the, what the mood was. But I'm not thinking they brought them to him with like this great, awesome faith. Like, let's see what you can do with it. But he does. And there's a miracle behind the miracle. There's something behind the scenes right here that happens that is marvelous. Because here it is on this afternoon where they've heard him teach. And no doubt, like, he, he, like all those people who were here were intrigued by what Jesus was saying. Not all of them believed what Jesus was saying yet, but they were very intrigued by the way that this person spoke. Because he spoke like other people didn't. And he spoke like he had authority, yet he didn't really come from a, a lineage or training from great teachers of that time. And so everybody's kind of, let's come look at the spectacle. Let's go see what this guy's going to say. Because he's, he's saying some stuff that's crazy. So that's how it already happened. That would have been amazing in and of itself and that all these people showed up on this hillside. And then the other side is that how did he preach to the hillside and everybody, I don't know, I don't know. But that's already happened. That would have been significant enough. Every one of us would have been like, oh, wow, this, is, this was kind of cool. I didn't think this was going to happen today. Um, pretty awesome. And then the fact that he starts breaking bread, blessing it and breaking bread, and everybody gets food. And I guess everybody gets enough food, right? Because then there's more. And there's a remnant. There's some leftovers. And I don't know that I've ever really thought about this, and this is another thing you ought to dig into. What does it look like to clean up after 10,000 people? That takes a while. I don't know that I've ever said, I mean, I have, I guess I just pictured everybody's got a little basket, but no, they didn't have baskets. Everybody's passed their basket down. Down the left, disciples walk down the aisle, let's pick up the baskets. <laughs> I don't know what that looks like, but think about that. At the end of it, somehow, some way, these 12 guys who are close to him, who he's called out, each end up with the basket. Another lesson where Jesus is like, you need to understand that I'm going to give you what you need. Quite a remarkable moment. Your mind would have been quite blown. And I'm going to ask a question here for what happens next. And I'm going to let you go back and research and think about it. Maybe we can have a discussion on it sometime soon. But this idea of what Jesus wants to leave and retreat. And he puts his guys in a boat. Which we now know is also an impossible task. Because of what's about to happen. 
So here's your thing you need to go back and study. Why do you think Jesus left? Why did he want to be alone? Why did he send his guys on and not go hang out with them and talk about what they'd just seen and heard and all that kind of stuff? I'm not going to answer that for you. You're going to have to go back and find out, Gallons. Anyway, uh, it's really not a right answer necessarily unless you come up with something crazy. Uh, anyway, um, but um, so he sends them off. And then we get into this passage where immediately after this, Jesus insisted the disciples get in the boat, right? In verse 23, it says, After sending them home, he went up in the hills to himself to pray. And night fell while he was alone. Meanwhile, the disciples were in trouble far away from land, for a strong wind had risen, and they were fighting heavy waves. About three o'clock in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. When the disciples saw him walking on the water, they were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, It's a ghost! But Jesus spoke to them, Don't be afraid, he said. Take courage, I am here. Okay, I cannot... Like, we ain't got enough time. Y'all don't want me to spend enough time talking about <clears throat> all that just happened in those couple verses. That's, I'm dead serious. You need to go back and look at it. We literally could spend a semester talking about just this story. We could. But what you need to understand is these guys get in the boat that Jesus put them in, and they begin to travel. Dom pointed out last week, these are not novice guys. Most of them grew up around the water. Some of them made their living, a good portion of them made their living on the water, on this water. This is also one of those things that is normal to this area. That's another piece can't really unpack tonight, but, but, but that's one of those things that in this body of water, storms tend to roll up and can get kind of crazy. This is not that big of a place. It's, it's, it's big, the sea that they're in, but it's, it's not crazy, crazy. It is kind of wild that you're at 3 o'clock in the morning rowing and they're terrified. These guys were not hanging out in the middle of the water because they wanted to. They're working their butts off and they think they're going to die. And so I don't know, it's a complete, almost a side point. This is something I'd love to spend more time on, but for the sake of where we're headed tonight, I can't. But there's going to be times when God calls you into a storm, God calls you into something that is bigger than you. And it might be right where you're supposed to be. And if you look, this story is told in a couple different places. And John and Mark also. But in Mark 6 it talks about where Jesus was going by them. And I've always thought that was very curious. But that He's, he's walking out on the water. They're terrified. They look and they see it. Maybe it's a ghost. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. Don't be afraid. I'm here. So what's the rational response? 
Of course, Peter. In comes our, our character right here. We're talking about vision. We're talking about um, kind of the lesson of kind of faith that, that Peter has. And he, he says in verse 28, Peter calls him, Lord, if it's really you, tell me to come to you. Walking on the water, because we do that every, every other day, right? Like, where in the world does this come from? I don't know. I really don't know. And this is kind of the big piece of the story, so we can't miss it. But I do need you, like for those of you who've heard the story before, you've got to sit in the absurdity of the moment. Where we're sitting here and, and these guys have like they're fishermen. It says they were terrified. There's a storm. First of all, has anybody been in a storm in the wilderness at night? I've been out there a time or two. Like, I, I grew up deer hunting, um, and there's some times where I would go to a deer stand in pitch black darkness, or, I, you know, in the morning. And there's been some times where I would come out, and even doing it regularly and knowing the land that I was on and stuff, you get a little, you, get, you know, get a little bit of hair on the back of your neck standing up sometimes, or you're just a little extra jumpy, because it's black dark. And there's only been a couple times where I've either been out on a lake, which I had actually boat lights, so it wasn't pitch, pitch black. It was pitch black everywhere else, but at least I had some light. And then been in the woods when camping when all of a sudden a storm was coming in. And it's creepy. And it, the other side of it is it is pitch black dark. So I don't know exactly what happened for them to be able to see Jesus. But they see Jesus probably in the cracking of light. And that's probably, I mean, you understand why you'd think it's a ghost. One, there's a dude walking on water. That's strange enough. But then also you only get to see it at the flash of a lightning. And then he, there he is. And then it's pitch black again. Well, did I see that? I'm not real sure if I saw that. Crack of lightning here in a minute. Uh, I'm pretty sure there's somebody over there. Crack of lightning. He's getting closer. And then you be, I mean, so, so just think about in that moment and what that might look like. And then, of course, Jesus speaks out and calls out. That's the other thing. Has a storm stopped? No. Storm hadn't stopped. Matter of fact, if you, if you jump ahead, for those of you who might have, storm doesn't stop until they're back in the boat. So we still have waves. The boat's still doing what it's doing. The guys are still just as freaked out. Lightning's cracking. You're seeing a guy. And Peter's response is, hey, if it's you, let me come out there. I don't know where that comes from. I don't understand that. It's got to be one of the crazier things in Scripture. And then, except for it's trumped by the next piece, right, where Jesus responds in verse 29, yes, come. <laughs> I, I just think about being one of the other guys in the boat. When you, I mean, you're sweating. You're, it's 3 o'clock in the morning. You're exhausted, tired, worn out. And then all of a sudden, it's getting real weird. Like, it was already weird. Jesus, your buddy is delusional now. Because he said, please let me come out. I don't know what the sentiment in the boat was. I'm like, what the, like, <laughs> of all the things to say, 
You, you're going to step out. The boat's still moving. The boat's still rocking. We still got a storm going on. Yeah, come on out. Now, what's Peter do? Okay. It's bizarre. It's a crazy moment. And with all that's about to happen, just think about the faith that it takes. And whatever. <laughs> some of you do some crazy stuff. <laughs> some of you have a crazy bit of attitude. <laughs> some of you enjoy the crazy. And so I, I have been around a couple of people that I thought, yeah, that, I mean, they'd be happy to say, hey, let me come out there. I'm probably one of the guys in the boat. <laughs> you know, like, I'm not sure how this is going to go. <laughs> now we're going to have to rescue this moron, you know. Um, that, that's that's my, my thought as I'm looking around for the raft and rope and all this kind of stuff. We, we're try, we all think we're going to die in the boat. He's getting out of the boat. Um, and so let's we'll start formulating a rescue plan. And Peter steps out and he begins walking to Jesus. If that getting out of the boat requires a lot of trust. But in that, Peter does something amazing and gets to be a part of something amazing. Not just that Peter gets to do something amazing, but then everybody else kind of around got to tell that story. We thought he was crazy. But it was the most crazy, amazing thing we've ever seen. And so the trust that it's going to take to get out of the boat, it's intense. And it's tough. But I'm going to tell you something. Jesus will call you out of the boat. And he'll call you out of your comfort zone. And they were already in the storm because Jesus had asked them to get in the boat. But I'm going to tell you, if you don't ask to get out of the boat, you're going to miss out on an amazing journey. And then Peter does something that we've got to point out just a little bit. And so Peter went over the side of the boat and walked on the water toward Jesus. But when he saw the strong wind and waves, he was terrified and began to sink. He goes, save me, Lord, he shouted out. Has a storm stopped? No. Think about that. As a kid, I don't know why, I think it's taught this way, <laughs> but, but the, I, I think about, one, just the walking on water and how, you know, boom, boom, one step, two step, you start thinking about it. But if any of you have ever been on water that's in a storm, it's choppy. That's what Peter steps out on. It's still dark. It says nothing about Jesus illuminating things. So how often does he see? When the lightning cracks, I guess. Or I doubt he's got a lantern on him. But as the lightning pops, he's through the waves. He, he's looking for Jesus. And it's quite remarkable because... He falls. He gets looking at the waves like any one of us would, right? 
He steps out of the boat with trust and faith that Jesus has called him out there. But as he begins to look at the waves and the craziness of that, I don't blame the guy for getting distracted. But he gets distracted. And he falls. And what the remarkable thing to me is what Jesus says to him. When Jesus grabs him, pulls him up, that's a weird experience in itself, that he's in the water, Jesus pulls him up onto the water. We're back walking on the gra- on whatever, solid water. Um, <laughs> in verse 31, Jesus immediately reached out, grabbed him and said, you have so little faith. Why did you doubt me? That you have so little faith, that phrase is a phrase that's got used a couple different times within the ministry of Jesus. One of the times is in Matthew 6, verse 30 through 33 kind of area, as the end of the Sermon on the Mount is coming up, and Jesus is talking about how, why, what, what good does anxiety, what good does worry where does that take you? What does that do for you? And he goes, lays out, I'm going to encourage you to go back and read that. Because at the end of it, he says, you know, the birds of the sky. Man, they don't do anything. They don't plant. They don't whatever. The flowers. They don't take care of anything, but I make sure that they're clothed as beautiful as anyone ever. What good does worry do you? You of little faith. And it's that same phrase, see the same original language that he uses right there. Why would Jesus say that to Peter? Did, was Peter out on the water and all of a sudden started doubting, oh my gosh, Jesus can't help me. I don't believe in Jesus anymore. I don't know. I really don't think so. I don't think he had time to. What did he do? Because Jesus didn't make a mistake in what he told him. Peter got distracted. And he got focused on the waves and the wind. (laughs) Obviously, (laughs) he's standing on water in pitch black darkness as lightning's cracking. And all he sees is lightning and crazy boat and waves and wind and everything else. And then what happens? He goes down and Jesus picks him up. Lord, save me. And Jesus picks him up, pulls him up and says, ah, you so little faith. That would have been puzzling. The two of them walk back to the boat. They get in the boat and the sea's calm. And then they worship and they're like, who in the world is this? We've already seen some stuff. We've seen some healing. He's already calmed the storm before this, this time and walking on water with them in the boat. He was asleep before. And so how in the world does this go down? And why does Jesus say that to him? Because when you get distracted and I get distracted and we begin to see the storm that's in front of us, you lose faith. And so focus is what's going to keep you walking on the water. Trust is what's going to get you out of the boat. And like I said, there's so much more in, the, in this. But that idea of staying focused on Jesus, even in the midst of the craziness, 
Like, like if you just put yourself in Peter's shoes and think about the dynamics of what's going on that night. Think about going from how awesome the day before was, the, that afternoon, when you got powerful, awesome teaching, you got folks who showed up. These guys have been living in obscurity and not really having a house, not really having a place. They're bouncing from place to place, having to trust for meals and all this kind of stuff. They're not, they don't know where food's coming from. They're handing them loaves and fishes. And this is right after everything's really ramped up because John the Baptist has just been killed. Now everybody's wondering like, oh crap, what's going to happen to us? And then awesome afternoon. Jesus says, get in the boat. You're rowing, you're, you're talking about what happened during the day. All of a sudden, the storm comes in. You're like, hmm, hmm that looks ugly. And uh, you're, you're rowing, and then now here you are at 3 a.m. in the morning, worn out from the day and from the struggle. And here Jesus is. He says, you cannot focus on the wind and the waves. You're going to lose faith, and you're going to fall when that's what you focus on. He's beginning to teach Peter a lesson that Peter's really going to need to learn. And there's going to be something else we'll talk about next week that, that we're going to try to grab a hold of this idea. But the same thing's true for you. Is you're going to have crazy things go on in your heart and life. You may have some craziness in your life right now. And my question kind of for you as we get ready to wrap up is... Do you trust him enough to get out of the boat? Do you trust him to step out into the storm? Do you trust him enough to get in the boat knowing that there might be a storm? Because in my experience, if we're not in a situation that's bigger than us, that's tough to deal with, and not, not every day, but, but when you trust and follow Christ, you're going to find yourself in some things that, you know what? That storm was bigger than Peter could handle. The disciples that are in the boat, they weren't. They, they were in a real, real struggle. They really thought they were going to die, and they're not novices. They understand they've been in storms before. This was a, this was a real one. God may call you into something that is bigger than you. And the only way that you're going to be able to get through it is by focusing and following Him. But if you'll do that, you may get to walk on water or something like it. You got somebody like, as we wrap it up, the, there's a guy that came across that he's another one that I'm going to end up doing some more research on, but David Brainerd is a guy who got... Um, he's more of an influence probably more than only his impact. He, he really was a missionary who won several Native American tribes to Christ in America. But he's credited with being a heavy inspiration in people like, if, if you've ever heard some of these names, but William Carey, Jim Elliott, Adoniram Judson. They all heard of his story and what he did, and because of that, propelled them into ministry. But he was a guy who, who felt the call of God to be able to follow after Christ and want to be a pastor. And so his idea was, I'm going to go to the best school I can go to at the time and, and learn how to be a pastor, sharpen my skills and stuff. So it was Yale. 
And so he goes to Yale, gets in school. He makes a dumb decision <laughs> and he's mouthing uh, and bad mouthing somebody who's over him. Well, I think he's a professor or something like that. And, somebody, and one of the other deans or something like that heard him. Kicked him out of school. And so now he, he goes back, he begs, he pleads, he does all this kind of stuff, and he can't get in, and they're not letting him in, and so he thinks his dreams died, and he's gone back and forth, and, and he tries all kinds of different stuff to try, maybe even a couple of others, Harvard and a couple of others, to try to get into their divinity schools. Uh, all of those, by the way, started as seminaries, if you didn't know that. Um, but he's trying to get into those. Can't do it. And there's a guy that comes along named Jonathan Dixon who takes him under his wing, understands what happened to him. Um, by the way, Jonathan Dixon later on goes to found Princeton. Um, but Jonathan Dixon actually gives him his credit accreditations. And so because he couldn't actually get into a school at that time and where they were working at whatever, he did, just didn't see a way that he could become a pastor of a church. And so he begins to pray that God might lead him in a different direction. So in the midst of all this chaos and all this stuff, God begins to birth in his heart to do something a little bit different. And that something different is to become a missionary to Native Americans. He struggles with that as well. At the very beginning, goes to a couple different tribes and is just not tending to work. And then all of a sudden, there's an afternoon where there's a breakthrough. An entire tribe comes to know Christ. And because of that, it opens up the door to several others who are along the way. And the story with that is that he stayed focused. And David Brainerd is really kind of an open door, not only for what he did with some of those tribes and sharing the gospel. And there's, there's accounts of an entire tribe laying down on the ground sobbing because of what they realized, they realized what sin was. And they began to understand that they had offended God and it broke their hearts. But not only that, but because of the way that he taught, the way that he stepped out in faith, those other men that I named off really did some great ministry and work in telling about Jesus Christ and that influence that they had over people all over the world. You have no clue what's on the line on your faithfulness. And you have no clue what God's calling you into. And I don't either. But whatever it is, if you'll trust in Him, and if we'll stay focused on Him, we're going to see God move in an amazing way.